Hello, I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. Artificial intelligence is already shaping the way we work, consume, and communicate with one another. It's also shaping the way we govern ourselves, or perhaps more accurately, the way we are governed. While we might imagine ways AI could shape better democratic processes, right now experts are worried about how such technologies can be used to manipulate, divide, suppress, and disinform people. With these concerns in mind, we ask, is AI a threat to democracy? My guests on this episode of Open to Debate are Sam Jeffers, Executive Director of Who Targets Me, and Kareem Bardizi, Executive Director of the Dias at Toronto Metropolitan University. Let's start by talking about what we are talking about, because artificial intelligence is often misunderstood or partially understood. Incidentally, so is democracy. So Sam, I want to come to you first, a basic first question to get us rolling. Uh, what is AI and more particularly, what is generative AI? Yeah, thanks, David. I mean, I think the the focus, particularly around democracy and elections at the moment is, is more on the generative AI side of things. And obviously, you know, these are essentially pieces of software that can generate uh, text, images, video, audio, um, that feels sort of realistic in some way, I suppose, is the, is the piece that, again, people are kind of most interested in around democracy. So whether that's uh, images that that are likenesses of real people or look like real people or, you know, copies of our voices or uh, text that reads like the sorts of things we might write, um, you know, that, that I think is, is what, you know, the, the primary focus uh, in and around elections, politics and democracy is at the moment. Right. So we can imagine a scenario in which something like that becomes a problem in the heat of the moment. We can also imagine how it might be a long-term problem outside of the heat of the moment. So I want to stay with this for a second vis-a-vis uh, -vis elections. So imagine we're in an election. It's a close election, not that necessarily we're going to be facing a close election anytime soon, but let's pretend we are. And the candidates are squaring off, and all of a sudden something goes viral on the internet. A politician has said something awful, huge gaffe. It gets picked up. It gets picked up by some journalists who are resharing content without thoroughly checking it. Later, it turns out that it was the product of generative AI. Um, is this something that experts and policymakers are thinking through as a scenario that we have to have to find out, uh, have to figure out how to how to manage or, or forestall? I think um, worrying about would be more than uh, planning for. Oh. <laughs> uh, the, um, uh, if you see what I mean, I mean, you know, I'm I'm sat here in in uh, Ireland, but from my accent, I'm from the UK, and so you, even today in the UK, there is a, a sort of deep fake panic going around almost as we speak, where the mayor of London's voice has been faked saying some stuff about some quite. Um, it's a complicated chain of events, but you know there are Armistice Day uh, um, commemorations this weekend. There is also going to be a sort of march for Palestine on the same day. Uh, you know the right believes this shouldn't happen. Other people who see sort of freedom of speech and freedom of protest as being a thing think it should happen. The police have been you know it's it's, it's quite a big political storm here, and the mayor who is of London, Sadiq Khan, who is Muslim, has been you know voice faked saying they should move Remembrance Day weekend. Uh, oh my gosh! In order to keep, um, uh, you know, to allow the the Palestine protest to go ahead, 
And of course, it's completely ridiculous. It's debunked within seconds and so on. But there's a kind of right-wing echo chamber that's reverberating this stuff around itself and saying, well, he won't deny it. So, uh, you know, um, you know, he won't deny it's as bad as, you know, he, he thinks it, you know, it, it, as it being true. And so, you know, there's this kind of live debate amongst journalists and others looking at this, trying to work out what do you do about it? Do you do you report this stuff that's on the internet? Do you not report it and ignore it? Do you assume that it will get rebutted? I mean, um, I think um, the mayor's officers referred it to the police who said they'll investigate you know, so so how this all gets dealt with, I think, is is a real worry right now. But I'm not sure there's a kind of clear chain of events, command, what to do, um, which laws may or may not be helpful, um, whether or not platforms are interested in helping in the you know in in the very short term, uh, and so on as as to how to deal with this. And as you say, if something does get reported as being real, and then retrospectively uh, found not to be real as you know i think there's been a couple of instances of this happening in the context of um israel and uh, gaza and palestine you know that that sort of stuff has been really really difficult uh, particularly for journalists i'm going to come to you in a second cream to ask you about this in the context of canada but first sam i want to stay with you for a sec uh this strikes me as being a problem on several orders uh, it, it's a technical problem i mean we could in theory address with technical measures at the platform level, it's a legal problem uh, to the extent that it breaks the law or to the extent that we should have laws that that, to, that police this. Uh, there needs to be a legal regime. And it's a norm problem, uh, especially when it comes to elite journalists, politicians, and so forth. Uh, the, there should be norms against using and abusing these things. Uh, to what extent, either in Canada, the United Kingdom, the United States, somewhere around the world, are there best practices and regimes set up to police this or to, or to manage this? Yeah, again, I wouldn't say I know of what I would call best practices anywhere in particular. There are a range of mechanisms um, around the world. So, for example, Who Targets Me, my organization participates in a thing called the EU Code of Practice on Disinformation, which has a number of internal groupings and mechanisms to look at this stuff. The, the problem is when you come up against new things, we suddenly are setting up new internal groupings and mechanisms to try and discuss this stuff and sort of trying to you know work out how you deal with it as you go the norms i'm interested in because i think from the sort of top-down politics you know the bigger actors i think there are real costs to doing this type of fakery and i think the norms will for the most part hold in in all but the most kind of egregious unethical actor cases so you know we might be talking one of the two candidates who will be running for president of the United States next year. But generally speaking, a sort of elite norm will hold. If you look at, you know, we look at a lot of elections around the world, there is a Dutch election campaign taking place at the moment and, and no one is attacking anyone else and everyone's being very nice and it's very sort of policy focused and, uh, you know, the norms have seem very strong uh, in that case. Um, so I think I think the norms will hold from the, from the top down. The bottom up will be an issue and I think the platform's you know, particularly for their own health, frankly, are going to have to work out how they're going to deal with this stuff promptly and effectively. You know, they can't be in a position, I think, where too much obvious, unreal generative AI material designed to kind of cause harm to the vehicle process can can circulate. I think that will be really, really damaging to them, uh, easily as damaging as some of the scandals that happened to them after after 2016. There will be a whole other round of tech lash uh, should that happen. So they have enormous uh, financial incentives to try and work out a way to get this right. 
And Kareem, what about the Canadian context in particular? Uh, some of our norms are holding up fairly well. Some of them look to be holding up less well, both from the bottom up and, and in some instances, the top down. I mean, Pierre Polyev and the Conservative Party have shown a willingness to take a run at Canadian institutions, the Bank of Canada, for instance, the Elections Canada even. Uh, so there is a little bit of norm stretching, if not busting. Uh, I'll talk about the information space a little bit later in, in depth, but the information space is becoming increasingly clouded. Uh, social media, deeply, deeply toxic, unreliable. We farmed out large parts of our public sphere to the private sphere, and that's being managed poorly as a rule. Um, we've got an election coming up by 2025 at the latest, potentially earlier. Um, to, to what extent are you worried that this challenge uh, in, in the Canadian context could upset fragile de uh, democratic norms? Yeah, we've got um, for some time now, uh, the public square is a less a shared space than it used to be. And uh, listeners to this podcast and people who follow um, activities online and politics are, are, have seen that for, for quite some time now. And our research at the dais is, is definitely confirming that. Um, you referred to kind of the governance of, well, of AI um, through through uh, through technology and through law um, in the political space, and I think there is some specific features to that in Canada which are, are, are challenging because these are global issues and global platforms, and the extent to which they're uh, prepared to uh, make specific Canadian um, ad adaptations is is uh, in question. Uh, the norms space is really uh, the one really to to focus on is one where in a sense uh, the public has more of a, a place. <laughs> Members of the public can uh, can ignore um, bad or toxic content online. They can call it out. Uh, leaders who are not just political party leaders, but other leaders who are not political leaders uh, can call out uh, the generation of toxic content, uh, including through the use of AI. Um, so I'll maybe just say say two things to, to conclude this part of the question. One, when it comes to uh, to AI generated content, um, it seems to me that in politics it's kind of an anything goes game. Uh, the norms are norms until they're broken, and they're usually broken because there's some political gain or some political reason uh, to be had. Uh, I don't think there's any way to predict which uh, party will be the one. That will first try a really big AI-generated uh, uh, um, campaign of misinformation or of persuasion. Um, it'll depend on uh, their own circumstances. Um, it'll depend on some of the things Sam talked about uh, with respect to what is working or not working, uh, what gets debunked or what gets sticky in other countries. Um, when it comes to institutions more generally, I think we have a lot of work to do to uh, uh, in Canada establish a norm that institutions are fallible, but but important and good. Um, and some of the attacks that you mentioned, especially by uh, Mr. Polyev, are starting to really uh, try to undermine some of those core institutions. Those core institutions, though, in turn, haven't always done such a good job explaining themselves. Uh, and it's that in that context of not explaining themselves adequately and the context of an information ecosystem that allows bad, toxic, negative, AI-generated explanations that are uh, maybe not what those institutions are actually doing uh, that can really create some some problems. Yeah, I've, I've been watching with interest and at times glee with the 
the Bank of Canada taking to Twitter, forever known as Twitter, uh, to debunk some claims that are circulating online in a, in a sort of slightly saucy way, which I kind of like. That may not be the best for the institution, but uh, it's certainly entertaining. Uh, Sam, uh, to what extent is this a supply versus a demand issue? And, and I'm thinking about... Uh, on the one hand, we can say, well, my God, we've got to stop people producing this stuff. And uh, that's certainly true. We need to be very, very careful about the production of, of generative AI that seeks to to disinform. But then there's a demand side too. There are plainly communities of people who have no concern about whether or not something is true or not. They have no concern about whether they've done their due diligence before sharing something. Uh, there's a demand side for it at the public level of consumption. It, it, when we're thinking about tackling the problem, to what extent do we tackle it as a demand versus a supply problem? Yeah, I think that I think that is a, 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 a good framing. You certainly see uh, an appetite amongst, as you say, certain communities for, for, for I suppose, this kind of politics as entertainment. Can we do something that makes politics entertaining to, <laughs> today? Uh, what can we do? And there's there's a sort of community of people who are, you know, active on Twitter and a few other social networks who are who are sort of open to that and want to try and you, you know hear those messages. So you know, it obviously goes a bit both ways. But if you know the audience is there, then you, you know you you will try and supply it um, uh, that way. So um, you know. What I suppose I struggle with a little bit is when we sort of get to the place of saying um, we need to make sure that people are more literate in general about this sort of thing and they're able to judge information for themselves and so on. You know, there is a there are supply side things that could be done along that chain of creation and distribution, which would be enormously helpful and where we should, I think, put quite a lot of responsibility on. You know the, the models that create this information in the first place, the the the, the networks which it, which that material then travels through. I suppose the, the, another protective feature is on the supply side is um, just how fragmented everything's got. I mean, you mentioned it already, but the, but you know the fragmentation even of social media as people move away from Twitter onto you know several other platforms that may or may not replace it in the future. So you have this kind of enormously complicated media environment uh, online with. with every service having its own algorithms, ways of working, types of content it likes or doesn't like, uh, and so on. So I think there are, you know, I think there is some sort of protection built in when it comes maybe from moving from sort of isolated pieces of information, you know, a single deep fake that gets people excited for a few hours versus a much wider sort of narrative um, thing. I think supply is a place where we have a lot more control and, you know, we should be trying to be a, a bit careful on that demand side because I think that, you know, if we're, if we're totally focusing on trying to reduce demand, we'll be, we're sort of picking the hardest lever first. And I want to build off of this question, sticking with you for a sec, Sam. Uh, to, to what extent is it a foreign actor versus a domestic actor problem, or does it really matter? I mean, I suppose from a legal regime standpoint, it matters. Um, perhaps from a norm standpoint as well. Perhaps from a, I think from a technological standpoint, it probably does. But uh, for for quite a long time now, going back to 2016, and I guess that counts as a long time these years, uh, or even before, 
there is a palpable concern about the rise of the malicious foreign actor in digital spaces, right? The digital threats to democracy. And, you know, one of the models was that foreign actors could um, exploit domestic institutional weaknesses, exacerbate domestic tensions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously that's uh, complementary to hacking and other uh, forms of, of digital assault. And that presumably isn't going anywhere. So when we think about generative AI, it's a tool in the toolkit. Uh, to what extent is it a foreign actor problem compared to a domestic actor problem? And, and how do we approach those problems uh, similarly or, or in different ways? Yeah, I mean, I think I think they probably do end up with different approaches. Um, you know, in the sort of domestic sphere, at least so far, you know, this does seem to come from the political right you know you sort of beyond the beyond the the sort of mainstream political right as it were often and so you know it, it seems to me that that has one set of political solutions which are quite different to the ones that you might face from a, a foreign um adversary um you know these things cut seem to come in in waves a little bit you know obviously post 2016 in the us there was a lot of global concern you know will Will Russia now meddle in every election uh, in in sort of Western democracies, and and that hasn't really been borne out to any great extent. There was there was that one example. There may have been some some examples before 2016, but but once the the platforms, security services, uh, et cetera, et cetera, were sort of made aware of this, or you know finally woke up to it, uh, you did see them start to put in place you know more verification processes around accounts, controls on political advertising. Uh, you know, build uh, teams up who could detect unusual patterns and and these sorts of things. And, and what you would then see was, was them finding networks that were really underdeveloped and really small and, and almost certainly had very little impact, even if they were, you know, sometimes felt like they were quite well targeted at particular, um, you know, minority groups or, or or something like that within within a within a country. So, you know, the the foreign influence thing I think will be really interesting, and I I think actually probably a lot of similar controls that are already been in place or tried would still be quite effective here. You know, if you're talking about certain types of content creation, a lot of concern again. There's a sort of second wave now of concern about bots, for example. You know, will, will kind of AI powered, um, you know, chat bots built by foreign adversaries sort of spread out across the internet and and start doing harm there. Um, again, I think the networks will have a big role to play in that. Right? They, they, the platforms will be able to hopefully monitor some of these things and, and shut them down as they see them evolving uh, and go from there. So, yeah, I think you have you have a you have a kind of political challenge on on the domestic side, which is a sort of very highly motivated group of partisans trying to kind of cause damage, harm, whether it's to institutions or opponents. Uh, but then you have this kind of foreign adversary thing where. You know, you'll probably have to just sort of evolve the systems you you've built up over the last seven years uh, to tr to try and stop that happening. And I think, and and to Kareem's point, you know, that's going to vary by country. You know, platforms are going to invest a lot in trying to make sure that the U.S. election next year is not uh, threatened. Whether they uh, do the same for you know the 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 tens of other elections that are taking place in 2024 is another matter. And Kareem, I want to come back to you and turn to the Canadian context once more. Are there any efforts in Canada uh, institutionally through academia, through uh, civil society organizations or politi political organizations, legislatures, and so on, that you look to as, as perhaps a site of hope on this file? I'm thinking of the work that 
Michelle Rempel-Garner is doing with Senator Deacon and others in Parliament, working across party lines, working across the Senate and the House on trying to get the government and the country and the legislatures to think about AI uh, in, in a broad sense as we work on regulations. Um, in, to what extent is there a community in, or communities in this country who are saying, this is a thing that we need to think about, This is a these are the problems we need to think about, here's some ways to think about uh, about it, and, and to what extent does that filter out to, to Canadians more broadly? This is where I'm hoping we can get a little bit of of good news, a little bit of hope. But of course, yeah, you know, definitely... if there is none, it's okay too. No, there's definitely policymaker attention. So first at the institutional level, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Senator Deacon and MP Rempel-Garner who have started kind of a, a multi-partisan uh, tech, uh, responsible tech caucus. Um, and uh, they're they're pushing a pretty aggressive agenda of, of, of regulation and, and of um, kind of literacy uh, around these issues, uh, more at the uh, elite level, but uh, they also have a they have a platform. Government departments are interested in this. The government itself, the federal government itself, is is interested. There is uh, hopefully the retabling of the online harms bill, uh, which is now going to be in Mr. Verani's Department of uh, Justice, uh, as well as currently uh, the AI Data Protection Act, which is currently before Parliament. And whether those two bills will interact to, to really help stop the worst uh, on the of the potential damaging uses of AI in social media platforms uh, remains to be seen. Um, so there's definitely institutional level attention. There's also civil society attention. There are lots of organizations. Uh, the Dais is one. Uh, we work with a number of civil society organizations, especially those concerned with um, uh, hate against certain demographic communities, against certain cultural communities um, that are paying attention to this. I think one of the places that we haven't talked about yet in this podcast, but I think is going to be an important site, which unfortunately is a bit hidden, is the use of AI-generated deepfakes and the sort of more personalized AI-generated uh, conversations through private messaging platforms, which are uh, invisible to most pol most uh, policymakers and to the public. Uh, so the use of WhatsApp groups, the use of, uh, of Facebook uh, groups and other private messaging platforms is a place where AI-generated deepfakes and um, those personalized AI-written messages can really take off. Uh, they can be forwarded, they can be shared, um, and, um, you know, in our, in our previous data's research, we've heard lots of concern about this, but it's difficult to regulate because to really get at it involves um, breaking encry encryption in some cases or violating the privacy that's inherent in those platforms or opening them up potentially to to uh, um, to police authorities, which you probably don't want to do in general. Uh, so there's some work there to be done. And I think our concern, especially around any election uh, where diaspora communities are important electoral coalitions, is that um, perhaps foreign-generated AI um, deepfakes and personalized messages that are that are uh, damaging can enter those spheres, and it'll be it'll just be a bit harder to catch. I don't think we've kind of quite cracked that yet. Um, and there's that's also a place where the the norm around not using those is kind of lessened because the it's not an official party that would be putting those out. In fact, sometimes those things appear from nowhere in particular at all. They're just forwarded. They're they're shared, uh, but they don't seem to be kind of emanating from anywhere. So that that would be my concern. But on the positive side, lots of attention in Canada 
and fairly multi-partisan attention um, across government, civil society, political parties. You you mentioned diaspora communities. I want to chase that point down very very briefly with you. Uh, I remember living in British Columbia and covering BC politics and having people say to me, "You miss so much if you're not on WeChat." Right? I mean, the, the, there are places where diaspora communities online and offline, obviously, but online are having conversations, are building communities where lives are, are lived, that uh, a lot of Canadian journalists, a lot of Canadian policymakers, a lot of Canadian civil society organizations don't necessarily have access to. And I wonder how much of the iceberg is under the water that we don't see. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a significant amount. Um, people who follow the earlier days of um, online focused journalism might remember that I think Reuters or AP had a reporter dedicated to Second Life, um, which is a platform that I think is still kind of out there kicking around. And um, and uh, we now need, you know, news outlets are going to have to have people who are literate in uh, those communities, um, literate in language, literate in the specific political coded language that sometimes comes from uh, in those spaces. Um, just to be aware, I mean, you can't it's generally unethical to report on private conversations uh, where there's um, uh, that aren't don't involve uh, decision makers, um, but it's definitely important to be aware of um, uh, of those kinds of uh, what those kinds of communities are saying, and that's really incumbent on the journalists and media organizations to to be plugged in, and then for through MPs to MPs from different parties can help inform uh, departments and Parliament more generally about kind of what those communities are saying and can also be a first line of uh, alert to the use of, again, the, the two categories. I think the most important, the AI generated deep fakes and the AI generated apparently personalized conversations that are maybe happening in those, in those platforms. Uh, and, and Sam, I want to come back to you on this to try to think about, to, to flip the question a little bit, uh, to what extent can we imagine generative AI as supporting, enhancing democratic self-government? Can we imagine ways in which it mobilizes and informs citizens, which it engages citizens, in which it improves access to levers of power, even levels the playing field? Uh, is there anything like that even happening so far, or can we imagine it happening in some particular context here in Canada or around the world? I, I have been thinking about this question, and I do, I do struggle with it a bit, because I think what you hear when you, you hear people talking about, you know, AI, is often this kind of idea of costs and benefits, you know, like, you know, some sort of hand waving will happen and major future costs will be described. But, you know, we must also worry about, you know, the, the computers uh, destroying us and destroying democracy and all these other things at the same time. And, you know, most of the examples that people come back to when they talk about this sort of democratic, you know, innovations, opportunities around things that I think often exist already, you know, sort of we could have chatbots that you could talk with that might help with polarization in some way and help you understand the alternative point of view or you know there will be these kind of new deliberative opportunities where you can log into a sort of a you know ai platform and submit your ideas and have them evaluated and vote on them and these sorts of things so you know none of those things necessarily sound particularly bad in themselves you know i'm quite a fan of the idea of you know more um deliberative opportunities for people and more opportunities to participate but but the issue in the past has been that participation it, it's you know, unless you're sort of uh, 
compelling people to get involved because you're doing real citizen democracy. You're you're struggling to find um, volunteers who aren't all but the most kind of passionate and committed to doing this type of stuff already. You're you're not really hitting your your target audience with this um, with this type of work. So uh, you know I, I think those opportunities feel quite thin, unfortunately. I think I think there there could be some stuff, particularly around. Um, around journalism and the ways people engage with that. You know, I've heard some interesting ideas about how, how you might um, you know, take one sort of news article, as it were, and use generative AI to help with, well, obviously, translation into other languages could be, could be much improved, but also just you know, exploring different angles within stories and you know, having, again, maybe having them presented from other angles. So maybe there, there are ways of finding audiences more easily doing that type of thing, but but... You know, I think those use cases do seem often quite thin, and um, compared to the sort of, you know, the scale and, and the, the worries people have about the ways it might be misused, it, it doesn't necessarily seem like, uh, you know, the, the the balance is very much in favour of generative AI when it comes to sort of democratic. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add. I think there is mm-hmm. some uh, definite. There's some uh, use cases. Uh, those of us um, and both Sam and I have, have been involved in 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 running campaigns or in my case as being a candidate where the campaigns can use the tools internally to make their own work easier you know help me write this press release and 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 that that kind of thing um i think when it comes to identifying audience sam makes a really important point and maybe we're seeing uh, and maybe we'll see a bit of a a turn back uh away from micro targeting and those kind of computer generated or computer assisted tools for identifying your voters and uh, going back to a bit more of the old school uh, uh, ways of reaching voters, which is building community in person. And that doesn't mean you don't generate data as part of that. But um, ultimately, that's what politics has to be about. And as long as we have ridings, constituencies of uh, you know, 100,000 people federally and provincially in Ontario, um, as long as what the, those local elections, which add up to a national election, have matter in some way. I think it'll be important to uh, have national campaigns, not just assume that the AI tools are only only a good to help them in their targeting and in their making their campaigns more efficient. Sometimes politics is about inefficiency <laughs> uh, and about uh, the patience uh, to build up relationships and constituencies over periods of time. And um, AI-assisted technology isn't always going to be the best for that, I wouldn't think. Yeah, I'm very glad you said that. It's one of my uh, pet peeves about a lot of our politics is that we say, well, you know, parties want you to get involved. They want you to get out and vote. And I, you know, at, at some level, that's obviously true. But also in a world of scarce resources and tight elections, they're like they're counting postal codes, right? <laughs> they're They're focused on on high return areas. And this makes me think of a broader question that I'd like to ask both of you. Sam will come to you and then Kareem will come back to you. To what extent are the the potentially problematic, threatening elements of generative AI uh, vis-a-vis our democratic institutions a new problem? And to what extent is it uh, an extension of old problems? And I think about that in the same way I think about misinformation, disinformation. Misinformation, disinformation, is uh, these are new these are old problems that have new manifestations because of technological developments uh, is it the same story with ai generative ai that it's it's a it's a, a new manifestation of an old problem of, of sort of 
uh, political malfeasance, of citizens being dialed out and being willing to believe things they ought not to believe and so forth? I think, I think for the most part, I think that's, I think that's actually right. I mean, you know, the concern really about generative AI seems to be more about volume, low cost of production, realism of, of that production. And there's that sort of sense of, um, you know, everyone, I know, you know, be, be able to sort of look in the mirror and see a perfect version of themselves and, uh, uh, you know, being played back at them in some way. Yeah. I mean, you know, this, this, uh, this, you know, a lot of the things that people are concerned about with generative AI are perfectly possible, often with just taking a, you know, a flat photograph of the person and putting a fake quote underneath. You know, that that that's it's not terribly different. Um, you know, I think at the moment the realism of, you know, I know a voice fake or or um, you know, some video or something, is 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 sort of persuasive and interesting. Uh, I think that will probably be relatively short-lived a lot of a lot of why we're interested and excited by this stuff will be because it's new and then you know somewhere in five years we'll be talking about another new thing that uses the same the same sorts of um, techniques and ideas to, to to do itself so you know i think the, the 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 biggest issue here still for me is that we haven't really solved um lots of the problems that come with social media and the kind of original sin of user-generated content and how we manage that obviously it gives people you know a huge surface area through which they can express themselves and so on but we we haven't really got to a place where you know maybe some some norms hold a bit better there's you know very wide variety of behavior that you find on those places there's a very wide variety of performance from those platforms in terms of dealing with that behavior um you know uh, there's also our sort of tetheredness to to twitter over the last several years as a as a kind of new source and, and that that kind of need for constant gratification and so on so i think you know, it's a sort of uh, it, it's sort of just charging up a little bit further. Um, all of the, all of the same problems we've probably had for the last uh, ten or fifteen years. And Kareem, as you've seen this manifest in Canada, uh, you've been paying attention to getting politics for a very very long time. Uh, d- does this seem uh, of a new sort to you at at the at the fundamental level, or is it a, an expression of an old problem that we've been facing for years? As of yet, uh, it feels more like the expression of an older problem. But I think we know enough about what AI could be that I would want to uh, not be committed to that answer in the coming uh, months and years. <laughs> we see how these uh, uh, tools evolve. I think especially as the, uh, specifically in relation to deep fakes, um, as these large language models uh, and machine learning models are become more adept at consuming uh, and generating uh, audio and video. And if content creators allow that to happen, and if and if legal regimes kind of allow that to happen without and much sanction, I think we're going to get into a a different kind of space. The old editing the person, editing the political enemy out of the photograph, in the way uh, Joseph uh, Stalin did. Um, those things will be. Um, those things will be look look, look amateur in the, uh, in relation to what we think could be possible. And again, that relates then back to the norms and the activities of political parties and political actors. Uh, if indeed politics, uh, if indeed the public rewards authenticity in politics, and we have lots of evidence of that, then authenticity online and offline has to be aligned. <laughs> Um, and uh, AI again, AI assisted tools to help make your campaign work 
internally a bit better uh, are going to be important, but AI-assisted tools that are interacting with voters uh, and having voters believe that they're interacting with someone who's not actually the person they're interacting with uh, or um, or generating deep fakes that are clearly intended to have you believe things that aren't quite what they are. Perhaps, perhaps uh, over time, there will be less rewards to that kind of AI-generated political online activity. However, uh, I just I, because the tools are evolving so fast, I, it's hard to predict exactly in what direction, other than what we've been talking about, uh, the tools will end up going to. I'm going to close out on this question. The last couple of minutes we've got, and I'm going to come to you on this first, Sam. But uh, Kareem, I'm going to come back to you. So you got a, you got a second to think about it. Uh, every time we do an episode about something broadly like this, and I'm not even talking, I'm not talking AI, I'm not even talking tech, I'm talking about fundamental challenges that touch on individuals as well as institutions. People want to know what they can do. It, it's 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 predictable as the sun rising. People listen, they get worried, justifiably so, and they think like, okay, I want to do something. They want to feel empowered. They want to feel like there's something they can do. Uh, Sam, to what extent is this a problem that can be mitigated uh, by individuals? And if if there are paths to do so, what do they look like? I think my first instinct is to say that okay, you know, there are there are normal, healthy behaviors around you know a certain level of skepticism and so on that can that can um, uh, help here, right? If uh, people uh, politicians, for example, start saying things you know that they are very unlikely to have said, partly because they're professional politicians and making unguarded comments at, at the perfect moment in a campaign is um, is just too too lucky to have happened to uh, to their you know to them or whatever that you know that that I think is is good stuff. But my impression here is that you know we need to find the right way to put pressure on uh, on the networks that we you know ideally want to trust. Right, we use these things daily hourly um you know and we want our our you know social media networks telephone calls text messages whatsapp groups and so on we want those to be largely places where we can believe what we see so you know there is a kind of there is a kind of network thing here and i think there is going to be um you know there will be further backlash against platforms that are unable to to sort of look after us uh, in that way I think obviously that the services themselves that, you know, ChatGPT or, or any of the other kind of uh, large language model type um, uh, software is also going to have to be, you know, have the same sorts of checks that social media has gradually belatedly tried to introduce over the last few years to make sure that their services can't be uh, misused because it, it's just going to come down to to really simple stuff at some point. You know, they're, you know, someone important is going to get faked, scammed, Etc. Uh, you know, ideally, platforms and services are doing this stuff voluntarily now. You know, they understand the technology; they're doing it now. Because the next step will be, as Kareem said, it will be, you know, politicians saying, "Oh no, it's time we need to really enforce verification now. We're going to need new laws against malicious, uh, malicious uh, impersonation and manipulation. We're going to have a whole bunch of new stuff that potentially impinges on some fundamental rights, or it certainly sits in very grey areas as regards fundamental rights." So. Yeah, I think I think the more that citizens can say, no, no, we want networks of trust and we want services that produce things that are, you know, mostly beneficial. That that it has to go there. And I know that that doesn't feel like something I can do right now, but I think there will be campaigns and all the rest of it that will emerge that that, that try and make sure this stuff happens. 
And Kareem, I'll close that with you. Uh, thinking about the Canadian space in particular, uh, you've been in this space uh, as as uh, as an academic, as uh, someone who works with civil society organizations, as a candidate, as a social media user. It is, when you look at the Canadian space right now and you follow the feeds and you watch the discourse evolve, do you ever think, folks, here's what you got to do? If you had that message to send to people, like, this is a thing you got to do, uh, what would that be? Mine well, is, I, is log off, but but say <laughs> say logging off is not an option for various reasons. Well, well as Sam said, it, it really uh, comes down to trust. And trust and the use and deployment of AI-assisted technologies in the public space and the political space it aren't necessarily opposed. They're not necessarily opposed, uh, but it takes definitely takes responsible use. It takes uh, in, uh, participation in some of the codes that uh, Sam was talking about. It takes some limited experimentation. Um, uh, I mean, I'll maybe a little story from my own campaign to help close. Um, when I was a candidate, um, you know, I'm a local candidate in the uh, provincial candidate in the in the 2022 provincial election, and we ended up using, you know, no AI assist. We ended up using YouTube as a fairly um, major part of our online outreach, and there was actually a relationship between the online outreach and the offline outreach. We would uh, geo-target our YouTube ads to to the riding, uh, and then in the door-to-door -door activity, we were more likely to have people uh, who were aware of me, of the candidacy of the campaign through that. That's a good kind of pro-social, proactive use of the platform, uh, I think. Um, and lots of campaigns are using uh, using these platforms for fairly, you know, well-meaning, uh, you might almost say benign purposes to get word out, maybe to do some light contrast with their opponent, sometimes some unfair contrast with their opponents. Um, but campaigns... Uh, and these campaign specialists who are, to an earlier part of your question, are so far removed from the people downstream. They have a, have a, they have a technical sense of this. How am I going to turn these dials to generate uh, this increased turnout to target this message in that particular place? And that's kind of some of the space we have to reclaim. And that's a space we have to reclaim um, in our online lives and in our offline lives. Um, but you see people making some of these choices uh, based on their perceptions of the trust of the platform. So you referred to the, the social media feeds. And it's a fact, unfortunately, that even those who would like to engage more in an online, in an, in an in-person life or a more authentic political experience, can't just log off. You have to be where the people are. And the people are in those multiplicity of places, not just Twitter anymore uh, for a certain audience, for sure. Um, but in platforms that are farther removed from uh, where some of the journalists and where some of the elites are, uh, Discord, Pinterest. Um, and each of those platforms has its uh, unique governance and algorithm, and each of them probably has a different relationship with the kinds of AI-generated uh, tools and dialogues that might work on those platforms. So there's uh, complexity uh, and those of us who care about shaping the space just have to be have to be aware of and in the spaces, but then also have to pull ourselves apart and be in the in-person spaces uh, and have some sense that our lives cannot be entirely lived online, whether they, there's an AI assist or not. 
and I think that maybe is a hopeful uh, thing to say at the end that ultimately this this work is about connecting, and some of that connection happens uh, happens in real life, and some of that happens online. Uh, I think that's a perfect note on which to end, and and I think it's I think both those responses are hopeful, so I appreciate it. That, that, but that brings us to time. So uh, my thanks to each of you for joining today for a fantastic and timely conversation. I really appreciate it. Welcome and, and thanks once more. Thank you, Thank David. You. And as always, my thanks uh, to the folks who make the show not just possible, but far better than it would be without them. I, Sajara, Ross Clark, and Carolyn Smith. So that's it for now. We'll see you back here in two weeks. <laughs>